0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: So I'll just start with my little intro. I've got one little apology to make, which is you're going to get seagull noises. There's not much I can do about it because I'm, I'm, I'm in deal by the coast.
2: Same here. Well, where are you, in fact, Matt? I'm in Brighton, and uh, the morning seagulls sound like baby dinosaurs, so.
3: Yes!
1: (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll be bringing together big names from the world of advertising, marketing, and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity, and the future possibilities for our industry. And today, we're looking at the origins and growth of two direct consumer e-commerce brands who have both seen tremendous growth since launching just a few years ago. Matt Hiscock is vice president for Harry's, Harry's Razors, you may know them as, which launched in the United States in 2013 before entering the UK market in 2017. Its original subscription service offered shaving products and has since extended to include a wider male grooming range. Frank Athill is Marketing and Brand Director for Patch Plants, who launched in 2015 with a mission to fill the gap in urban gardening. The company helps you discover the best plants for your space, delivers them to your door, and then helps you look after them, which is, for me, probably the most important part. So, welcome to you both. Um, just starting off now, um, I, suppose, I suppose I'll start, Matt, with Harry's, uh, which I've been a customer of. I've been a customer of um, Patch Plants since this morning. I've been a customer of Harry's for probably about two or three years. Um, You took the unusual approach at the time to start out as a subscription service, D2C brand. Um, If I'm right, Harry's actually exists physically in the US. There is one shop, is that right?
2: Yes, we started direct-to-consumer. And when um, we were very new, we introduced a barber store in Soho, uh, which you could get beard trims and haircuts from Um, the the leases since uh, expired on that. So we don't have an own own store presence in the us but we are sold through retailers now do you find any reluctance are
1: retailers reluctant to sell you because the argument is well all you'll do effectively is uh, use your product to um, uh, essentially promote d2c sales and uh, we'll see you know one or two sales and then lose the customer do you ever get that objection
2: no not at all i think there's um There's a nice um, relationship between online and physical retail. And I think that the reality is that the shaving market is a lot bigger in retail than it is online, significantly so. And so there's room for both selling channels, essentially. Um, We see, you know, a, a good relationship between online customers and our physical distribution.
1: Because it's worth remembering, I suppose, that D2C, if we're going to be a bit mischievous about this, the whole D2C subscription idea does go contrary to everything Byron Sharp recommends in how brands grow. And in other words, you should have lots and lots of distribution channels because that's physical availability. And the idea is you should effectively expect most of your sales to come from infrequent sales to very, very large numbers of people as part of a repertoire. And, of course, D2C subscription uh, runs counter to this. Now, it's worth remembering some very, very successful brands, not least Netflix, of course, started in exactly that space where you had, you know, regularity to a small group of subscribers. Um, it was your decision to also sell in physical stores driven a little bit by that and Sharp uh, insight? Uh,
2: yes, the economics of the category are that, that in-store is bigger than online, but also um, our customers asked us for it. So we started out in, in 2013 uh, as a direct consumer business. In fact, when we started, we didn't have uh, a scrip- subscription offering. It was buy as you go, a la carte, as it were. And over time, customers asked us um, to introduce a subscription offering because they didn't want to have to remember to buy blades. They just didn't want to think about it. And so we looked at what a subscription offer might look like for customers and and really wanted to find out what was most important for them. And and they told us it was ease and transparency. So it had to be super easy and you had to um, be really clear um, about when your order was coming and also how you can change that, which we've done. so we give plenty of notice ahead of an order. Um, and then over time, if you sort of take this theme of customers asking uh, us and having this direct-to-consumer feedback loop with customers, customers started to say, listen, we love your products. We love our subscriptions. We'd actually like to be able to buy um, when we go to retail as well for our weekly shop or whatever it is. And so, um, yes, there's a there's a sort of category dynamic for being present in in thousands of points of distribution, but also customers wanted us to.
1: No, that's interesting. It's interesting that they actually asked for that. I mean, I suppose, um, uh, what other parallels would you look at? The Apple Store is an interesting one, obviously. Um, And Nespresso would be a second example where it started off, certainly in the UK, as something which was, um, uh, okay, it was online only, not subscription only. Uh, Nespresso subsequently uh, introduced a kind of subscription service where you pay a set amount um, and then you you decide obviously how you spend it or when you spend it. Um, that's another model. And I suppose you also have it's worth it's worth for those people who aren't customers who are listening. It's worth explaining that it's not quite the monotonous regularity of subscription that people may fear. In other words, you have the option to pause your subscription and delay your next delivery. If you find yourself with a surplus of razors, you can. Um, push the next delivery out to, what, three months hence, I suppose, or as long as you like. And so you can slow it down and speed it up at will whenever you feel like it. Um, A similar model there, I suppose, is Gusto. I don't know if you're familiar with that, uh, which is a food box and recipe delivery service, which I've, uh, funnily enough, since lockdown, I've become a huge uh, huge devotee of. Uh, What it effectively does is you choose meals, either for two or for four, uh, four meals for two is the default or, or or two meals for four. And then a box arrives with absolutely all of the ingredients, I think, bar salt, pepper and olive oil. And um, you then make the meal at home. And that, again, has the same model where by default it's a weekly order, but it's a matter of a couple of minutes work to either put the thing on hold because you're going on holiday or, or simply push the next delivery um, forward or back or indeed forward. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about your category is that as consumers get more familiar with the model and some of the fear disappears. I think there's always that fear of subscription that you end up with, you know, a huge heap of things you don't want or that something, you know, something arrives, you go, oh, shit, I've already got seven of these. Uh, this really isn't what I would have bought. Now, okay, in, in, in Razors, you've got a, go- a fairly good category. Although I imagine under lockdown, you have had a number of people um, uh, slightly postponing the next order. Is that a fair guess?
2: I think we, t- sort of just to pick up on, on some of your comments there, I think we've all had one of those subscriptions that's nigh on impossible to get out of. And um, we don't want to be that brand. So we've made it really transparent. You can change it up anytime. And you you take the the subscription out in the first place based on um, how often you shave. So you start in the right way and you can control it throughout. I think lockdown has seen um, a reduction in shaving uh, generally, but as a growing brand, Um, And as a direct, a truly omnichannel business, during the first part of lockdown where people weren't going out to stores, um, we actually saw um, an increase um, in in orders to our website from people who just didn't want to go out and so came to us to buy their their goods.
1: Ah, brilliant. Snail Wind. That's fantastic. So, I mean, one of the great things I think we can all say, uh, well, I mean, is that um, uh, not only has lockdown been a crash course in Zoom and video conferencing, it's also been a crash course in online ordering. And um, uh, one of the great things is that uh, people who were you know, heavily reluctant beforehand, and there's always been that degree of reluctance, uh, happily less in the UK than in most other markets. In fact, the UK, if I'm right in saying, um, is pretty much the world leader in online retail um it seems for whatever i mean it's very interesting to ask why that might be actually did did you i mean you must have come into the uk immediately after launching in the u.s is that right
2: so we we'd been live for about three years um in the in the in the u.s before we launched in the uk i think the uk has um an acceptance of online shopping um we have a, a really good infrastructure here you can get next day deliveries pretty much anywhere apart from sort of the islands and the Highlands. Uh, and there's a confidence um, with ordering from websites, whether it be domestic or international. Uh, there's been lots of cross-border uh, trade development over you know, the past 10, 15 years. So I think there's an acceptance to online ordering. We are a country of um, a good size to be able to get product. And we've seen um, things like groceries or online grocery uh, penetration, um, move far ahead of many parts of the rest of the world and I think you know that's something that I've seen from from the US online grocery during during this period um has really had to catch up uh, I suppose one advantage the you the UK had over um particularly
1: markets like Germany is we've never had a high degree of credit card paranoia have we um I mean, there are certain countries where, you know, the use of credit cards was almost considered, you know, um, an act of personal irresponsibility. And so uh, it goes hand in hand with our fairly um, early adoption of um, uh, uh, tech. Uh, It it actually bears out, by the way, for for the marketers listening, um, I'm increasingly coming to a view which is outrageous when you first express it, which is that the principal constraint on economic growth and technological progress uh, is now a marketing problem it's not a supply problem now there's a reason why economists don't want to believe this because of course it would require them to accumulate you know acquire a completely new skill set all around soft skills like marketing and, and persuasion whereas all their expertise has been acquired about you know efficiency of supply and of course, economics as a discipline started in an age of kind of scarcity, really, where people were hungry and they needed corn. And now I would argue that in terms of and I would argue that the pandemic partly proves my point. I've discovered subsequently that there are a few economists who agree with this, that they say that actually, if you want economic growth, you need to focus on marketing and creating um, an, you know, an innovative consumer culture. Uh, more than you need to function on sort of efficient supply and economies of scale and the usual things that everybody assumed were important. I've discovered I'm not entirely alone in this, but I think the fact that you had Zoom, the technology existed before lockdown, but it took a pandemic to get people to use it to any intelligent extent, I think is slight support for my, my claim, in fact. And in the same way, I think, by the way, I think there's a large market for subscription. And one of the obstacles you face in subscription is the fact that a lot of people have engaged in this sludge where it's easy to subscribe, but impossible to unsubscribe. And that actually has had a, a, a damaging effect on the whole market because it leads to widespread distrust of the idea. So there might be, there might be scope for kind of having a kind of kite mark for transparent, open, and flexible um, uh, subscription services, which offer convenience without commitment. And, you know, to have a kind of badge that you can issue to those organisations which allow you to cancel easily. Do do you still find that fear present when people first approach Harry's?
2: Yes, um, all of that is true. And I think I had that very uh, newspaper subscription myself and ran that gauntlet of trying to cancel it a few times uh, because there there were things I wanted to see within the paywall. Um, We work really hard um, on messaging throughout our funnel just to make sure that our proposition and how it works is really clear. And so that starts from first advert essentially to wherever you land on our website, to the journey that you go on through the the web product uh, to finally check out. And then we continue to um, reinforce the the, the ease and control through all of our subsequent messaging. So I think we do quite a good job um, of making it easy for people. And many companies are probably scared of that in the subscription space because making it too easy to cancel can make you know an impact to your business but i think in a subscription based business giving control and giving ease is is the only thing you can do because the the reason we introduced it in the first place, place was because customers asked for it and then they told us what was important which was ease and transparency so we have to stay true to that
1: now i think i think that's highly important because who it, it, who is the person patently in the short term making it easy to cancel or defer uh, is going to lead to your short-term metrics looking worse and i think it's a classic case where doing the right thing can conflict if you've got the wrong metrics doing the right thing can conflict i'll move to i'll move to frankie now because um you started uh, essentially with a, a, essentially a little bit of an urban gardening um, mission i guess um so um your your first um, approach was um, Uh, To supply the urban gardening market, what did you find when you looked at the market? There are a few. Obviously, there are a few online players in plants and gardening. Crocus would be one we probably have to mention. Where did you see a a gap uh, being possible for patch plants?
4: Uh, Yeah, we saw um, probably three problems um, on different scales. One was a cultural problem. Um, We saw many more people living busy urban lives. and uh we we were those people we felt like we wanted a way to slow down daily life reconnect with nature but also without leaving the city um there's a cultural problem so the gardening industry um not really adapted to consumer changes uh it's still predominantly offline out of town you need a car to go and pick up your pick up your plants uh slacking in, in in inspiration and and generally focused on old customers um and then consumer problems so like uh, us and all of our friends felt like it was uh we wanted plants um we thought they were beautiful and uh we thought that they were interesting and could be a new fun uh helpful hobby um but we also thought that you needed a garden to garden and um we thought that hot plants were probably quite hard to get hold of and also to keep alive um once you get them back to your house
1: so when my plant when my plants in fact arrive um in what four or five days time uh what i'll also receive is a whole bunch of information about how to look after them
4: yeah so because because we have your email address and we have your phone number we um will send you what we hope to be very very helpful very bite-sized uh, easy to digest um guides for general um gardening for beginners um which we have a free video course that we send to every new customer uh it's very easy for them to opt out of it but most do uh, choose to to keep the 10-day course coming through their inbox and watching these kind of two-minute videos on the top 10 things you need to know to keep houseplants in general alive Uh, but we also send you a guide to the specific species you have uh, giving you top tips on what to look out for if it's getting sick um, and what to do to, to keep it back to good good health and then if you are ever in a sticky situation and your plant isn't looking its best we have a plant doctor service so uh, you can send photos of your plant uh, uh, answer a couple of questions through a form and our team of plant doctors will get back to you with um, specific advice uh, to try and get your plant back to good health.
1: Because I think you've spotted something which is uh, very clever in most cases online retail um, principally, or, or first of all, benefited people in more remote areas in that you had access to the kind of retail that previously required you to drive to a city. I grew up in the Y Valley. And, you know, in my childhood, if you wanted to buy an interesting piece of hi fi equipment or something, you know, anything that was slightly out of the mainstream, it involved a trip to Cardiff or Bristol or Cheltenham, depending on your. <laughs> Uh, how prosperous you were feeling at the time, and um, uh, you, you've almost done the opposite, which is you've spotted the fact that actually, whereas the uh, rural audience or, or the suburban audience even is fairly well served, the urban audience is very, very badly served by any of this. And I think I think that's undoubtedly true. The urban audience are also not likely, by dint of age, in many cases, to know the kind of things to enable you confidently to buy. Because, I mean, garden, inform- garden centres mostly assume that you're already an enthusiast. And um, you've done something, I think, which um, uh, is undoubtedly filling a gap in the market. How, how quickly have you grown? How, how easy did you find it? And how do you advertise and promote yourself,
4: mostly? Uh, we've we've grown, we've grown pretty quickly, yeah. Um... We uh, when I joined Patch uh, three and a half years ago, we were doing probably about twenty orders, and then um, you know at the peak of lockdown, we were doing uh, you know two thousand plants a day. So it's been a big growth. Um, as you said, lockdown obviously gave um, gave a huge number of people the impetus to try online shopping when uh, when they maybe hadn't in this category before. Uh, and a lot of those since we've since we've come out of lockdown and uh, the shops have opened up, and stuck with us. But yeah, it's been pretty fast growth over over the four years of the company and uh, the time I've been with them. But um, we've grown. How have we grown? We've grown through uh, digital marketing. Uh, you know, we online only uh, and have been um, uh, for all the four years. We've run a lot of ads on Google and Google Shopping, uh, but also a huge amount on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, um, and then through referral. So about a third of all of our new customers have come through people, uh, generally happy customers, uh, or people that have enjoyed our content uh, on YouTube or Instagram, telling their friends, um, telling friends about Patch um, and the ways that we can make it easy for anyone to get into plants. Um, the people we've been targeting being pretty different from from those that the industry's targeted before, catered for well before. Um, about half of our customers have never bought plants before. Um, so we've, what we've done is tried to unlock the reasons why uh, they haven't bought plants by making each of those steps, picking the right plant for your, for your space, delivering it to your door, and then helping you keep, uh, keep it alive once it's been delivered. By removing the barriers, each of those steps, uh, we've unlocked a lot of people that probably were curious, maybe wanted them, um, but found them, uh, didn't think that the market was relevant to them and didn't think that it would be easy enough. Um, and forty percent of our customers have maybe bought one or two plants before, but definitely don't feel confident and so we're really helping them with the confidence around picking the right plants and keeping them alive. And only 10 of our ten percent of our of our customers uh, are, describe themselves as confident plant parents and uh, we guess come to us mainly for the convenience of the, of the delivery.
1: So that's that's pretty much proof that your strategy was the right one in the sense that that that, that figure by the way of te- only 10 percent of people describe them that that surprises me because I you know you you what you're doing in terms of your evangelism for plant ownership uh is very very successful if, the, if that's the figure because you know I would have expected it to be 50 50 I would have thought yes I you know there is huge capacity for growth in people who aren't familiar with With plants and who haven't bought plants before but that figure is really impressive do you have plans to um do the Byron Sharp and to go into physical retail as well or I mean you could I suppose particularly if you control the retail environment uh you could of course offer the same level of after sales service um uh even if you sold um
4: uh, through conventional retail do you have any plans along those lines I think uh, it's definitely very interesting to us. Um, The vast majority of plants are still bought offline. It's probably one of the slowest industries out there to move online. Um, While we think that's going to continue and and definitely uh, the lockdown accelerated it, there's still a huge opportunity. One of the most um, exciting things about us offering plants in shops is that we can um, overcome the the cost of the delivery barrier. So the moment we can't really deliver a plant for under £20 uh, profitably, and therefore, we don't actually allow people to check out with less than that in their basket. Uh, but if we had, if we had plants in shops, we would cater for the big chunk of the market who'd just like to buy one at a time. Um, so there's a big opportunity there that we are missing out on helping people through having to deliver them and popping down to the shop for for good reason that unlocks that because um, so, you 're different in in one sense
1: from harry 's I mean the one great advantage from harry 's as with I suppose what would be other categories which would be perfect for subscription, hosiery for example. Um, in that your product fits through a letterbox. And Harry's indeed have a range of very clever boxes where even if you order quite a bit of shaving foam and other uh, add ons, everything is sized so it will go through a letterbox. So you don't have that concern about being in and you're not particularly bothered about name day delivery. Do you think, now this is one thing I'm going to get on to the government about because I think it's one of the innovations. Do you think we need a nationwide open source locker system or pick up drop off? Because it's one of those things where you'll never discover its value until you until you do it at scale, but the equivalent of Amazon lockers but open to all online retailers um, where I know that someone's planning to do this in Holland, and essentially their idea is there should be a locker within walking now it's the most densely populated country in Europe, so it's a bit easier for them to do it than for us, and you'd be you probably wouldn't extend this to the Highlands and islands being not not wanting to be anti-Scottish about it, but you know, areas of absolutely, you know, um very, very low population density. But um do do you still think as I do that there's there's scope for some major step change in in distribution and in and indeed in returns as well?
4: Yeah, I think um I mean it would be great for us, for sure. Um there's certainly some wastage and some risk and some confusion for customers um and our delivery team when when uh, when they're out and we have to leave it on their doorstep or in a safe place um but uh, yeah as you say we haven't had a lot of reports of people running off with a big kentia palm in a five foot box but um but i'm sure it would be a a, bit big it would unlock a lot of uh uh, efficiency in 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 returns to um people having to go all the way to the to the drop-off point for different couriers or to the Post office for a different courier in their busy day. Um, if they could drop it off in the in, in local um, uh, locker, it'd be a lot easier.
1: I think it also hugely reduces uh, cost of distribution because talking to people in that market, what they say is, look, actually, if you're UPS or FedEx or whatever, um, you only need really sort of five or six thousand locations to have reasonably convenient nationwide delivery. London's a slightly different question by the way but you know uh, in in parts of the country where most people drive around by car and where you can simply add half a mile to your uh, your journey home to pick something up what you find is if you only needed let's say 5000 points rather than 22 million households to deliver to the cost of distribution plummets effectively um because you know you can typically make you know five deliveries and three collections from a single point Whereas the whole business of house to house, all it takes is one remote household and you've, you know, you've effectively tied up a delivery driver for half an hour or an hour. Um, and so there's something there, which I think needs to be looked at, which is a halfway house between uh, retail, you know, conventional retail and delivery to the home. In the US, that's slightly different. You need twenty-two thousand or something. You know, the number of McDonald's or the number of Shell stations isn't a bad guide to, you know, what reasonably convenient nationwide distribution looks like. And the numbers generally smaller than most people think. Um, and so, I, and I'm, I'm convinced that something of that kind would make a big, big difference uh, in, in two ways. Confidence is one, uh, and the other one is convenience too.
2: Rory, I'd agree. Um... I think there are a number of solutions out there, but as a consumer in the UK, there's probably too many of them. And it's quite confusing now if you're getting lots of online orders delivered, as we all have been during lockdown, um, and you want to make returns. It's quite confusing between which one's actually post office, which one you can do pickup from, uh, and which one you can take to a a small store near you to drop off. I think bringing it all into one place would be good because um, there is a need for it. Uh, there's, there's multiple solutions out there. And I think if they all came together, um, we would, could end up with a, a, a situation like they've got in France, which, um, you know, is, is very well distributed, really well used by um, all retailers and, and most people. Um, and I think it would make the cost of delivery because, of course, that cost of repeat delivery or attempted repeat delivery is, is high. Um, it would just make everything more efficient. Well, it occurs to me, and not even Amazon do this,
1: bizarrely, which is that a failed delivery, which then ended up being dropped at the locker rather than, you know, returned to base, uh, you know, would probably create a lot less customer irritation. I've done a bit of work with Doddle about this, and they're very committed to this whole idea that ultimately, actually, we need PUDO for environmental reasons as well, simply because the volume of traffic Uh, will become impossible if if e-commerce continues to grow at the projected rate. Uh, It's it's simply a question of uh, cost and distance travelled, but also road
2: congestion. What's the French system? I'm intrigued about that. So there's a couple of systems in France. And um, when I was at ASOS, uh, we launched a, a French website and sort of got to know the market. And they have Mondial Relais and they have Calissimo. They're the sort of two solutions and and because france is a really big country and has about the same size population as the uk uh, to make some of these um, trips more economic places like local tabacs and um, florists are doubling up as um, a a pudot point and are incredibly well used and um, i think there is a, a version of that in germany and as you say, um, Holland are looking at it too. So I, I think I think it's the way forward. So th- yeah, there are
1: cases, you know, I, I don't want to come across as some sort of weird lefty here, but there are cases where slight control economies are very um, uh, provision of competition in distribution has also messed up the choice architecture, hasn't it? Because your piece, in a sense, could arrive and one of, I, I guess, what would it be, It'd DHL, UPS, uh, then there's DPD, then there's also Hermes. um, And one mistake I think that uh, a lot of online retailers make is they don't let you choose because your level of... First of all, if they let you choose who delivered, I know that everybody who's now working in um, logistics is going, but we wouldn't be able to negotiate so well if we didn't offer the distribution provider exclusivity. But preference obviously varies you know depending on your local hermes driver who you like um but, but also in terms of where the pickup point may be, and that obviously varies according to the individual and I think giving consumers more choice over how things are delivered. I always get a bit grumpy if I'm ordering say a um a classic case would be you know i I'm, I'm ordering a, a a USB cable and I get Look, I'll actually pay a pound extra for you to just put it in the goddamn post because the postman arrives once a day, pretty much at the same time. He knows where I live and he'll put it through the letterbox. End of, you know, whereas by insisting that this USB cable goes in a separate van that has to find my house, um, uh, that actually adds huge, you know, I'd much prefer it if I could just pay a quid and choose Royal Mail in one case out of, you know, five. Um, although, you know, some people will then deliver your USB cable in an enormous box for no readily apparent reason, but there you go. Um, uh, but I mean, I think there's something here where some sort of central intervention would actually benefit everybody without actually destroying the benefits of competition. Uh, it's just a case where actually, you know, uh, having one kind of um, uh, network of, of Pudo nationwide would make a huge difference, I think. It just, I suppose it's interoperability is what's needed, isn't it? Essentially, it shouldn't be that difficult to do. I mean, personally, but technologically. But it's interesting, and by the way, I mean I think you know one of the interesting things is that um, uh, the UK, talking to people in who my friends who live in Spain, the UK's high level of development in retail logistics and in um, uh, in online shopping has made lockdown and you know an order of magnitude less painful in the UK than for people in Spain who I know had. Uh, you know, my, my friends living in a fairly large Spanish city have said that getting anything delivered is unbelievably painful uh, compared to, to Britain.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
1: This is, I think, um, this is really, really fascinating. So, you, in, in, in terms of um, your social mission, both of you, I think it's fair to say, uh, uh, started out with a little bit of a mission. The motivation for Harry's, what was what was that at the very beginning? So, it started. There was one physical store originally as a Harry's store. What what was the actual kind of impetus that gave rise to that business? Was it was it an individual experience of frustration?
2: Totally, totally. Let me give you a bit of um, a bit of uh, his history. So, um, we have two founders, uh, and one of our founders lived in LA at the time, and he's a guy called Andy. Andy Katz Mayfield, and he ran out of razor blades, uh, as you do, and went to um, a drugstore in LA, and in, and this is the case in many um, US drugstores the razor blades were in a locked cabinet. You have to ring a bell. And about 10 minutes later, somebody came to help him. And when he sort of walked away from the cash desk, uh, looked at his receipt and realized he spent about $25 on four razor blades and then looked at the packaging and and sort of it, it, it struck him that it looked like the packaging was designed in outer space. He thought that whole experience is pretty rubbish and uh, there has to be you know, a different way of doing it. He, so kind he, of, made... he
1: kind of had a Larry David moment, presumably, where not only not only did he find it difficult to buy, but he then found it impossible to open the packaging.
2: <laughs> I don't know about that, but um, he definitely was uh, annoyed with the whole process, and it just felt archaic, frankly. Um, so he rang his best friend, a guy called Jeff, Jeff Rader, and a couple of entrepreneurs, and so they were talking about the experience, and, and Jeff had experienced that too, and, and was sort of looking at the the category and wondering if they could do something about it. And interestingly, Jeff has formed there. So Jeff uh, co-founded um, the American eyeglass retailer Warby Parker, um, who are uh, started out as a DTC disruptor in the eyeglass space. And in the US, um, when when they formed, they didn't really have like a Vision Express or a spec savers So if you needed if you needed reading glasses, it was a It was a premium, expensive trip.
1: Yeah, I think we ought to mention Warby Parker because um, uh, less well known in the UK to British listeners, but it's a very, very good case where nearly everybody who first entered the online space listened to economists and said, this is going to be commoditized. We're going to compete on price. Now, Warby Parker does compete on price to an extent, but it's a very premium brand. And it's probably the, you might even say it's the first case of, because there was always this accusation that the online space hasn't actually created any brands except for online brands. You know, it obviously created Amazon and Google and so forth. But Warby Parker is a very, very clear uh, first example where that is emphatically not true. It started online, but it's a premium prestige brand in its own right. Fair?
2: Yes, it's um, it offers value. There's a real value proposition in, in the products that they sell, but they are now present. I don't know how many stores they have, but it's probably upwards of 30 um, across the U.S. And so these, these retail environments are wonderful when you go in there. Uh, the level of service, whether it's DTC online or in-store, is incredible. And um with a with a direct-to-consumer business, they were the first ones who sort of offered you a chance to try on at home. So you could select maybe four or five pairs that you wanted, they would be sent out to you, and you'd send back the ones you didn't want and, and keep the ones you liked. So um, really tried to sort of get over this barrier to conversion as a DTC business trying to sell a new product. And so he,
1: he effectively, his friend who'd founded Warby Parker, essentially gave him the advice and this was both branding advice and business advice about how to go about it? No, they, they both
2: co-founded Harry's. They co-founded
1: uh, Harry's. Fantastic.
2: Yes. So they, they, they looked at it and decided they wanted to try and build a brand, uh, a brand that was sort of more relatable, more thoughtful, and I guess more real than many of the outdated um, brands that existed in this category. They felt pretty disconnected um whereas harry's or what they wanted to create with harry's is something that was very accessible and for for every man so they sourced product real quality product which is a hard thing to do they created the, the harry's brand so it's Bell a
1: hard brand. thing to do if you're not png is and gillette is, is is what you're saying effectively
2: yeah there aren't that many places um that make uh or many factories that make amazing razors so yes it, it, it's hard um they created the brand, they built the website, and actually we launched DTC uh, in 2013. So the, we didn't have the barbershop at that point. It was a DTC-only play and So it's um, truly a DTC model for us. It um, started out with no subscription, built-in subscription. And I guess the benefit for us of being direct consumer was that we build these really valuable and direct relationships with customers And what that helps you do is it helps you listen and learn. And so we have had probably about 3 million customer contacts into our contact centers since we launched across the world. And we don't consider them just tickets to be dealt with. We consider them customer conversations. And so we speak to customers every single day and really um, listen and learn uh, from what they're telling us about our business and how we can improve. I've got to ask one question, which is, um, uh,
1: uh, how many, as a a bloke, okay, one weird thing we don't know is how often you're supposed to replace a razor blade. And I've asked various people about this and said, you know, I mean, obviously a a razor blade manufacturing company would say daily or whatever, (laughs) whatever, you know, Um, but what blokes tend to do is first of all, you replace them more frequently, the more you have available in stock. So when you first buy a packet of four, you'll get rid of the first blade after a week. When it comes to the fourth blade, to defer the subsequent purchase, you basically eke it out until your face starts to bleed, at which point of necessity, you'll then go and buy a new packet. But what is the recommended um, regularity of use before you replace a razor blade? Because I've always wanted
2: to know. (laughs) You've nailed that insight, Rory. That is exactly what happens. And the reason it happens, the reason the last one's eked out is because uh, the price of these things is typically so high. So we, um, it very much depends on how often you shave and it depends on, um, the coarseness of your facial hair. So, uh, it's, it's highly dependent, but we sort of say every six or so shaves, um, you should be looking to, um, change up your blade. Thank you. You finally answered that. That, that does
1: kind of concur with my own personal experience. One, one point I also ought to make is you've, um, Uh, You've got a strong social mission uh, in the Harry's brand, which is a commitment to men's mental health. Um, Was that always part of the plan from day one or did that develop organically? I mean, it is is particularly relevant, by the way, in the sense that um, particularly among younger males, mental health is a kind of gender weighted problem. But I, I was just wondering where that where that came from, what the origins were.
2: Yeah, since uh, since day one social mission's been of huge importance to Harry's um since we launched the business, you know, day one, we've been giving 1% of our revenues to nonprofits. Um so we we genuinely believe there's a way to to do good um as well as doing well as a business. So this commitment um is just part of our DNA. Um but as the brand has evolved, I guess so too has our approach to giving. It's been it's become more focused over time, so Um, As a men's care brand or a grooming brand, we clearly care deeply about men and their lives. And as we got to know some of the nonprofits we were working with in the US, a consistent theme began to emerge that um, one of men's mental health and mental health, as as you point out, is an issue that disproportionately impacts men. And part of the reason for that is outdated expectations around what it means to be a man, you know, the strong and silent type. And therefore, that's sort of bred an inability to ask for help or a lack of confidence to do it. So we um, believe that by focusing um, on an issue that directly impacts the customers we serve, uh, our social uh, mission makes a ton of sense for us. But we're also um, driven by impact. We don't just want to do this to um, pat ourselves on the back. We want to um, stand for a cause that will make a real difference to people And set ourselves targets in much the same way as we might do from a commercial target. So um, in the UK, we've actually worked with Calm since we launched. So the Campaign Against Living Miserably, who are a a suicide prevention uh, charity. And so our current project with them is to provide funding support um, for a new function of their helpline. They operate helplines for for men in need Um, and this helpline is directly targeted at provided mental health access to vulnerable men in the homeless space who wouldn't or- ordinarily have been able to access this. And so this year we've been able to support uh, nearly 50,000 men um, through the phone lines, which is great. Um, and another project that we did with Calm is um, you may have seen this one was Project 84 a few years ago, which was an installation of 84 sculptures, um, uh, on top of the ITV studio building in in on the South Bank.
1: Just down the river from us, yeah, absolutely.
2: So the 84 sculptures um, represented real men who'd taken their lives. And the reason there was 84 is because it highlights the fact that, the grim fact, that 84 men a week take their life in the UK. And so the campaign's um, objective was to gain support and raise awareness. And ITV did a great job of... Um, talking to families of of who had lost people to suicide during the course of that week. Um, And the press picked it up. And obviously, it was very hard not to notice it if you were walking along the river. And the response was amazing. We had about 400,000 signatures through change.org. And actually, the overall objective was met in October 18, when um, the government appointed their first ever uh, Minister for Suicide Prevention. Uh, in October 18. So uh, we will have donated around about $5 million um, by next year to our non-profit partners around the world. And we've just hit our goal of um, supporting or helping 500,000 men globally.
1: Frankie, there there was a similar sort of mission, I suppose, drove what you were doing, which was, um, I, I mean, you are presumably plant lovers, I'm guessing. I mean, you're not just uh, kind of people who spotted a market opportunity. Uh, no, not not all plant lovers.
4: We do not have. Interesting. Uh, we do well. Not when they join the business. Um, most of us have fallen in love with plants since joining the business, um, and we obviously have some plant experts in the business now in our plant doctor team. But actually, most of us are um, do not. Yeah, we're not for, uh, first and foremost plant lovers. Maybe just um, more reflective of the, most of our customers where. We're people who were living kind of busy, modern lives. Um, we were definitely interested in plants as beautiful ways, um, and easy ways to decorate our homes. Um, and maybe a way to look up from our screens and, uh, have a fun, productive, uh, hobby that, uh, that we could start, uh, start enjoying. But, um, it's only since, since scabbing one, two plants that, that our love has kind of built. So you actually almost become
1: converts simply through joining the business. I noticed on your website, ingeniously, you made a point, which I think is a very good one, which is everybody's curating their bookshelves um, uh, in order to create the best possible Zoom background they can. And you actually have a section which suggests using plants as part of the backdrop, which to me is a fantastic idea, by the way, in that it, it probably says as much about you. Your choice of plant might say as much about you as your choice of book
4: yeah I think it's definitely a, a, well, some sort of badge that you can keep something alive um so you have some sort of sense of responsibility um and organization. I know that now you can buy um you know bookshelves by the six foot of random books you haven't read, so I think um you know I think a plant's probably more of an interesting mark of character.
1: Uh, It's interesting, isn't it? There is actually a kind of, um, I think in the dating market or the pickup artist community, there's an argument that plants and dogs are particularly effective because as you quite rightly said, they prove you can care for something. And I think, uh, you know, so there's an argument that there's a kind of uh, Darwinian argument for being a bit of a plant owner, particularly if you're a single male, I think, which is it shows your, you know, it shows your ability to care for something. But also I think... um, uh, you know, a, a a love of the natural world is generally attractive. And did, do you face... I mean, an interesting one that always struck me is um, one of the... I mean, you know, things like the Asperdistra became a kind of almost a cliche, you know. But do you think there was an unfortunate period in interior design where excess modernism and minimalism uh, was actually an obstacle... There's an element, I, I, I very nearly bought a very modern house once. And the only problem is I was doing it at a time when I had kids. And it's something occurs to me, one of the problems with modernism in architecture is it does impose a kind of fascism in terms of interior decor, which is a modernist, brutalist or minimalist house, looks fantastic if all your books are at 90 degrees to the table and you have three on the table and five pieces of furniture. The second you get a bit of clutter... Whereas in a Tudor house, actually having crack piled all over the place looks authentic and warm, in a modernist house, it kind of looks terrible. I mean I remember going being shown around a kind of modernist. Uh, it was a converted telephone exchange actually in Kent. And the house had obviously been absolutely magnificent when pristine, but then they'd had kids, and the kids had started drawing on the wall. And whereas drawing on the wall in a Victorian house would be a nice little bit of detail, in a modernist setting, it looked kind of awful. It looked like an act of vandalism. And do you think there's something there about uh, we need to change taste in interior decor, that the Scandinavianization of our taste in interiors needs to be kind of moderated with some kind of plant life or, you know, in other words, things that aren't at right angles?
4: Yeah, I, th- I think there's definitely been... Um that's definitely aligned with uh, maybe maybe easing the trend for house plants over the last five ten years, um, because there was a period when they they were very unfashionable, and there's been periods um, kind of on and off for the last two hundred years where they've been extremely fashionable and then extremely unfashionable, like um, any other type of art or furniture and other ways to decorate the house. But um, I think there's also quite a lot of choice, just like art and furniture. We have plants that are very have a very slick modern minimalist look and we have plants that have a maximalist uh, you know crazy jungle feel so uh, also paired with the decorative pots uh, that you put them in i think you can find something for pretty much any taste now on our site
1: but there seems to be one of the most interesting um arguments i've ever heard from evolutionary psychologists <laughs> is that in a sense dogs and humans co-evolved okay and what this person said is something which i don't have a dog by the way but um <coughs> It fascinated me that just as if you're not completely a dog if you don't have a human, because you've evolved essentially to live with humans, you've co-evolved with humans. In the same way, you're not 100% human if you don't have a dog. (laughs) Actually, humans have evolved to actually live with dogs to an extraordinary extent. Now, I'd like to apply, I think, the same argument to plants, that I think uh, living in an environment where Nassim Taleb writes a lot about this in Anti-Fragile, where being in the presence of fractal complex shapes rather than right angles is, if you like, our natural environment. And that actually recreating something of the jungle, even if only kind of symbolically in the home, is probably important to mental health in the same way. I mean, obviously, you'd, you'd be keen to support that. But is that part of your philosophy that actually having a plant in terms of air quality, but not only air quality in terms of actual psychology, it's just a good thing to live in a, a building with a lot of uh, foliage?
4: Yeah, I think um, I studied behavioral um, evolution. And I think I would um, very much uh, believe in a theory that says looking at fresh Juicy green things is going to relax the deepest part of your brain as a human, um, and so bringing them into the home where we spend ninety percent of our time nowadays, um, especially if we live in 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 the sprawling um, cities, I think that's a that's a good place to start. And then, secondarily, you have the relationship with the plant, uh, or put more simply, just the time up from your screen. I read this week that uh, you know we spend an average of six hours a day on either TV or mobile video uh, nowadays, uh, looking up from that phone um, and taking a patient, um, taking on the patient hobby of of growing something, watching it adapt, watching it evolve, um, propagating it to make baby plants, giving them to your friends. There's a whole world that you can start in a very, very small, very, very easy, accessible way, but could evolve into the lifelong hobby that is gardening um and one and of the greatest british pastimes so there's a there's a very sh- immediate impact on the environment and the relaxing it, space that you can create by having some some gorgeous plants around you and then there's the there's the hobby um and the way that you spend your time as a result of having plants in the house
1: there's something rather wonderful about using 21st century technology to provide people with a kind of ancestral environment isn't there i mean i i find this uh one one very interesting discovery, which I, I, I keep getting retweeted because Nassim Taleb um, uh, uh, bought into this argument, that one of the interesting discoveries of lockdown is that working in the garden doesn't feel like work. So if your Wi-Fi extends to a kind of outdoor space and you plonk your laptop down on a table and work in, you know, in sunshine in a kind of dapple light environment under a tree, um, very oddly, it doesn't feel... And I've, funnily enough, down in Deal, I've been working on the beach a bit. I noticed the extraordinary effect when we moved to Sea Containers House as Ogilby, where most of the, the windows overlook the river, that having a river to look at with boats going up and down as opposed to the building opposite has an extraordinary effect on how you think and feel. And I think, I think much more investigation of this needs to be done because... Um, you know, uh, you, know uh, you also have a, if i'm right you also have a b2b arm is that right in in,
4: in that you supply
1: plants to offices
4: yes yeah before um before the lockdown about 20% of all of our plants went into into offices or shops or retail uh, hospital hospitality um and we had a huge response to that and there are some very very uh, good scientific studies into the productivity uh, the mental health of workers when you fill their office with plants.
1: Because it's a a completely understudied area, which is white-collar productivity. If you think about it, if you're a blue-collar worker, you know, you work in delivery or dispatch or whatever, you've had your efficiency and productivity kind of maximized and tailorized to within an inch of your life. And yet one of the weird things I've noticed about office productivity, executive productivity, is... It's somehow assumed that once you put on a suit, you magically become this super efficient person who knows how to be productive. And so the amount of debate about, for example, is email actually a good way of using your time relative to video calling? I've often argued, I argued to Zoom. I said, look, your enemy isn't just air travel. Your enemy is actually email. And the extent to you know, the open plan office was introduced without really much thought or and, and with very little experimentation. And the experimentation there has been tends to show that open plan offices don't work very well because the lack of privacy causes you to use email more and face-to-face conversation less. The complete opposite of what was always predicted. And I think that whole question about office environments, um, about you know, the fact that where you work and the mode at which you work hugely affects your creativity, but also just general productivity. I mean, email to me is always horrendous because my dint of being um, asynchronous it's very easy to ask a bullshit question and delay things by two days you know we've all done it haven't we okay you get an email request you go god i do need to do this but god i don't want to do it right now because i'm already busy i know i'll look for a little loophole in this email ah they didn't say when they needed it by so you go you reply and you hit, great, I'd really love to help you with this, can you tell me when you need it by, and you go, oh, thank shit for that, I bought myself another 48 hours before they reply, and you realize that when you multiply that with sort of 20 million people doing it worldwide, the effect on just the speed of execution is going to be dire, but because each individual feels they're being productive by replying to their email quickly, the idea that collectively this may be a disaster is is hidden from them in a way, and in the same way, I think investment in office environments, in terms of, you know, what you surround people with, including plants and air quality and so forth, has been woefully low. Because, you know, if you think about it, these are the, in many cases, the, you know, these are, these are not people on minimum wage. These are people on, you know, fairly high premium wages. And yet we're putting no thought and experimentation at all into how you make those people most productive, and um, so that that's something where, I mean, any more research that Patch produces on that would be very welcome because I think we have to make the argument for looking at these things. I mean, generally, I suppose... Um, uh you found lockdown has been a bit of a gift because people have suddenly given more uh, urban people particularly who often of course spend a lot of a lot of their spare time out of home and in extreme cases treat their home as a kind of hotel room where you go to, you know, to sleep and maybe to eat. Um that's created a new focus on on, on dressing the interior. Is that fair?
4: Uh, that is. Yeah. It's it's been um you know, almost a, a perfect storm of different uh, changes at the same time. So more people spending more time indoors, and we sell predominantly indoor plants at the moment. The more time you spend indoors, the more time you expect to spend indoors over the next couple of months, the more cause you have to invest in that space and make it as nice as it can be. Uh, on the flip side, um, most plants are bought off, offline in shops. Um, the main reason that happened is that's just how they've done it before and feel most confident doing it, um, so by giving people cause to uh, challenge that assumption and, and try buying online for the first time, a huge number of them um, luckily um, have discovered all the benefits of buying online, the convenience, how much easier it is to, to pick the right plants because it's help, helpful filters on the website, and then all of the digital aftercare content and service that you get afterwards. So uh, they kind of had to try it. And a lot of them uh, discovered that they like it. Um, and then, yeah, you layer on top of that, that people were looking for, for a hobby. People were looking for a kind of productive way to use all the time on their hands, st- stuck in their house. Um, and that was the impetus that a lot of people needed to, to try out some gardening, try out growing some plants.
1: How have you been affected? Both of you, presumably, have you had difficulties with uh, logistics during lockdown in terms of supply?
4: we um we our plants come in from holland um and actually we we were lucky uh things were pretty smooth uh, throughout uh there weren't there weren't delays at the borders we were worried about there weren't they never closed the borders any time during the crisis so we could keep we could keep keep the supply chain open and actually quite the on, uh the inverse because um the growers we work with 40 growers in holland um directly and they saw maybe 80% of their business uh, slashed um, because the shops were all closed, um, all the garden centers and big box retailers. As a result, they were we really kept alive by the orders that we could place and oh. our volumes were up. So we were very, very welcome, um, probably one of the only few you know, few clients still ordering for them through, for a couple of months. And as a result, our relationship with them has, has, has strengthened, and, and we've been glad to be able to help them out because they're, they're, they're wonderful people, um, experimenting uh, with new species of plants and, and generally family-run businesses out in Holland.
1: I'm going to ask a mischievous question now. Do you have any plans for the decriminalisation of cannabis? Do you see that as an opportunity? I mean, I, I ask that not, I mean, if you look at the United States, WPP actually held a conference as part of the store, which is their retail specialist um, arm on cannabis retailing. Uh, do you see that as an opportunity?
4: I can't say we have discussed it seriously uh, yet, but um, but but why not? It's a great way to get people <laughs> into botany, I can tell you that much.
1: <laughs> And similarly um harry's you presumably obviously uh, razor blades there i think they're german made aren't they and you didn't have any supply problems at all
2: no we didn't um and interest, interestingly when we were when we were 6 months old in fact we um we bought our factory in germany that was supplying us so we became vertically integrated in the very early days mainly so we could um iterate on the product and innovate on the product quickly and uh, control our own destiny so no um, our factory was um, uninterrupted throughout and, and so therefore there were no issues with supply
1: so both of you just to end I mean what are your plans for innovation so if you take uh, Matt um, do you have plans both to innovate in terms of blades in terms of what else you sell on the back of this subscription do you have any lateral ideas for what else could be provided along with razors um, uh, you know essentially in the same delivery without giving away any
2: secrets, obviously. Well, if, if you look at um, our approach to new, new ranges, we tend to take a simplified approach. So we prioritize quality uh, and where there's a consumer need or, or pain point, And then we try and design thoughtfully around that. So we've gone from um, razors to the, the sort of products you use with shaving. And now we've launched a um, hair range we have body washes uh, so we're trying to be thoughtful about what we do uh, and trying to make a difference with what we develop um, but we'll be guided ultimately by our consumers who you know we maintain that dialogue with uh, as a as a Dtc business and so um, we'll we'll keep responding to their needs
1: and um just for interest what how frequent is the average order what do most people have is it five blades per month or is it um uh, actually averages are often misleading, but I mean, the, the mode, if you like, uh, in terms of frequency of supply.
2: Yeah, on average, it's eight blades and that's every two to three months and it depends between two to three, but they're the most popular orders. And Frankie, what, what about your plans for what's next?
1: I mean, it's worth remembering, by the way, I mean, it, you know, we, we generally it's worth remembering that if you don't have a car, that delivery to the home for plants is particularly important because actually, if you don't have a car, then retail doesn't serve you very well either. I remember working with Cook, which was a a Kent food company selling frozen food. And I said, of course, one of the problems you face in retail is generally you can only be the last thing that somebody buys. Because nobody wants to buy frozen food and then spend two hours wandering around the shops with the food thawing in their bag. And in the same way, nobody wants to walk around a shopping center with a massive grade aspidistra for two and a half hours. So you do face that problem in physical retail, which is unless you buy it as the last thing you buy, and even then transporting it home on the tube may not be the easiest thing. Um, delivery actually makes particularly good sense for plants. But do you have any
4: plans to sort of expand what you do? Yeah, we've now been, um, well, we started just in London. Um, we've now been delivering plants across, across the UK for six months. Um, the big step in doing that is we have to deliver those plants in a box. Um, a lot of those plants are very big, you know, up to six foot tall and fragile as well. Um, and also alive. And uh, they need uh, some sunlight um, after at least a day or two. To, to still look their best so that's what we've been working on um, hardest for the last six months um, so far it's gone excellently well but um, we're going to continue innovating particularly on the packaging um, and on um, more technology um, to help people uh, make it easy for people to keep their plants alive um, over the next year
1: i'm i going to be revisiting i can't wait i'm on your mailing list anyway but i can't wait to hear what's coming next in that i think that could be absolutely magnificent so i think we're well up to time but i just want like to say matt hiscock from harry's and frankie Athill from patch plants uh thank you both immensely for your time this has been very fascinating and even uh, one of you has maintained a customer and the other one has gained one uh, as a result of this conversation i'm sure when uh, uh, this podcast goes out there'll be many many more so that's all for this episode of on brand Uh, the podcast once again is brought to you by alf insight and for more information on powering your business growth just visit the website alfinsight.com. that's alfinsight.com the series is produced and edited expertly i may add by ultimate sound and vision so a huge thank you to them and to make sure you receive the next episode please do subscribe and if you've enjoyed what you've heard then do give us a like Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back soon.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mmm!